Um, I think it was Benjamin Franklin, wasn't it, that had that, um, that kind of famous quote about death. In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. And it might not be the most cheery thought in the world, I guess, but it's true enough, isn't it? Um, you know, death is, death is the great leveller, isn't it? One thing you can be absolutely certain of, probably even more certain than the fact you'll pay taxes, <laughs> is that 100% of us will die. 100% of us will die. It doesn't matter who you are. Uh, it doesn't matter how much you've achieved. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. It doesn't matter what your social standing is. It doesn't matter how, how fit and healthy or how well-educated or, or anything else. All of us will face death. Um, we like to cover it up, of course, don't we? We hide it away in hospitals and hospices and care homes. and It's a kind of an uncomfortable reality that we'd rather not dwell on very often. Or, or we like to laugh it off sometimes, don't we, in an attempt to kind of maybe sweep its cold reality under the carpet a bit and forget it. Was it Woody Allen who said, I don't mind dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens? Um, and so we, you know, we cover it up, we laugh it off, and then often we try and console ourselves with platitudes about it, don't we? Um, I've, I've heard that poem at funerals many times by Mary Fry. I do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there, I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. It's all very poetic, of course, but it isn't true, is it? The poetry is just like the humour. You know, it's a coping mechanism, isn't it? Something to cover up and sweep away the, the horrible reality and, and inevitability of death. But of course, no matter what we try and do to, to forget it, to cover it up, to laugh it off, it's just something that won't go away, isn't it? And not only is it inevitable, but it also sucks the significance out of everything else, doesn't it? That's why we don't like to think about it, isn't it? Because it just highlights the fact that whatever else we do or achieve, death just comes along and puts an end to it all. And so, friends, what could be more important than ending the confusion and the doubt about what happens after death? And what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 15 is that after death... There is resurrection. Now, the, the, the Corinthian church, you know, they were pretty confused about all this themselves. You know, Paul doesn't tell us exactly why uh, they were confused. But we, we do know, Sharon, you might need, the, um, you might need that to be uh, adjusted, the little wheel thing there on the, on the side. Uh, there you go. Thanks. Um, yeah, the Corinthian church were pretty, uh, pretty confused about this themselves. We're not exactly told why. Um, Paul doesn't tell us that. But we do know that he's writing this letter to a church who were kind of imbibing too much of the world's thinking into the church. That the, the city of Corinth was very, very influenced by the sort of Greek philosophy of the time, which tended to emphasize the spiritual and play down the physical. So matter didn't matter, as it were, to the ancient Greeks. It was the spiritual life that counted. What took place in the body was relatively unimportant, uh, and, and, and most Greeks of the time would consider themselves way too sophisticated, way too spiritual to pay much attention to what happened to the body. So the thought of a kind of a bodily resurrection after death, that would be a pretty disdainful uh, kind of idea to them. 
And so it seems that the Corinthian Christians were starting to doubt that as well. In fact, the earlier chapters um, of the letter show that they were much more concerned about having it all now than waiting for it when you die. So they were all about wealth and influence and certain supernatural gifts that made them look spiritual in the here and now. And that seems to have caused at least some of them to deny that there was a physical and bodily resurrection to come. No, 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 we've got it all now. And so Paul's writing to show them that actually the best is yet to come. And that everything that is to come for the Christian is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus' resurrection on the third day is the guarantee of our resurrection on the final day. And this was something that Paul knows the Corinthian Christians need to be clear on. Friends, it could hardly be more significant for us uh, either, could it? Um, Because how we live each day of our lives now will be radically shaped by what we believe comes next. So what he's done in verses 1 to 11, he's reminded them of the facts of Christ's resurrection, the the evidence for it. We were seeing something of that on Easter Sunday, of course. And, And he stated that this is the message, the message of the resurrection, is the message that brought the church into existence in the first place. And now he invites them in these verses to do a kind of like a thought experiment if you like, and and imagine the difference that it would make if Christ had not been raised. And then to know the difference that it does make since Christ has been raised. So that's what he does. Have a look, first of all, at verses 12 to 20. And, And imagine, says Paul, the difference it would make if Christ had not been raised. What would the implications of that be? Have a look at verse, uh, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So in the in the verses before 1 1 to 11, he's kind of comprehensively shown that Christ was raised from the dead. And and so having made his case, he then says in verse 12, uh, so how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? In other words, how can you argue that the the idea uh, of a resurrection is not possible when it happened to Christ? If you say there's no such thing as coming back from death, well, that means that Jesus couldn't have come back from death either, verse 13. And if Jesus didn't come back from death, verse 14, then Paul's preaching, the apostles' preaching, as well as their faith, well, it's in vain. In other words, it's useless. It's empty. And, of course, the message that Paul preached was that people were to turn and trust Not in some Jesus of their imagination, but in the Jesus who died for their sins, was buried, and then was raised on the third day, victorious over sin and death. So if this isn't true, if Jesus was not raised, then Paul would be preaching and they would be believing a a lie. Because, as he's told them in verses 1 to 11, the resurrection is not just like a minor detail you know, that doesn't really affect the gospel if it isn't actually true. No, it's at the heart of the gospel, such that if it isn't true, the whole gospel collapses, do you see? Um, some of you might remember, if you're older, old enough, back in, the, back in the 80s, do you remember the old Bishop of Durham, David Jenkins? 
famously expressed a lot of doubt about the physical resurrection of Jesus. Back in those days, it was pretty controversial, um, uh, controversial for a minister to say. Anyway, made the national news. There was a big kind of hoo-ha about it. But actually, within 20 years of that uh, survey conducted among the, the, the clergy in 2002, they, they reckoned there was a, a third of them who were unconvinced about the physical bodily resurrection of Christ. And of course, that would impact their preaching, wouldn't it? Such that whatever gospel they were preaching, it wouldn't be a gospel that assumed that Christ is risen. And Paul's point here is, well, what use is preaching like that? That's useless. That's empty. Because the message it proclaims, well, it's just a, like a religious notion, isn't it? With no grounding in truth, no, no historical basis. How could anyone believe that Christ's death actually achieved anything? Or that it was acceptable to God? How could we know that life after death even exists if Christ has not been raised? You see what's at stake. If you rip that bit of the gospel out of the Bible, well, any preaching you've got left and any faith that's based on it, it just becomes empty. It's, it's useless. It's, it's in vain. But if Christ isn't raised, then not only is our preaching useless, but our Bible is nonsense. That's the point of verses 15 and 16. Have a look. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Do you see his point? He's saying that if death is the end, if resurrection doesn't happen, then that must mean that Christ is dead too. And, and since the consistent witness of the apostles is that Christ is raised, well then if he's not, the apostles are liars. And so our New Testaments, you know, which were either written by them or, or, or uh, are written on the basis of their testimony, well those New Testaments, they're not worth the paper they're written on. If Paul's lying back in verse 8 when he claims that Christ appeared also to me, well why would you believe anything else that he wrote? But, but he's not done yet, because next he tells us that if Christ is not raised, we are not forgiven. Have a look at verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And, and that's because, of course, the, the Bible teaches that death is the price that we pay for our sin. The wages of sin is death, as, as Paul talks about it in Romans 6. However, the message of the gospel is that Christ died in order to pay that price on our behalf so that we can be forgiven. And what is the evidence that the price Christ paid for us on the cross was enough? Well, the evidence is the resurrection, isn't it? If, you know, if, I, uh, if I commit a crime, I'm not intending to, but you know, just, just say, if I, if I commit a crime and I get sentenced to 10 years in, in prison for it, what's the evidence that I've paid for the crime? The evidence is that when the price is paid, the prison door is opened and I walk. So if the tomb of Jesus was not thrown open, if on the third day Jesus didn't walk out of the tomb, well, it must mean he hasn't paid for our sins. It means that his death in our place wasn't enough. So we still have to pay for it ourselves. <coughs> Or as verse 17 puts it, if Christ is not raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Do you see that the validity of our faith 
depends on the object of our faith, doesn't it? And having faith in Christ, in his, that his death achieves the forgiveness for our sins, well, that faith is only ever good if, if death actually did achieve that forgiveness. If it didn't, well, having faith in him is futile. Why would you do that? And what is the evidence that his death achieved our forgiveness? Well, it's the fact that he burst out of the tomb, risen, alive. So we're we're kind of, we're starting to imagine, aren't we, the the sobering implications of Christ not being risen. Right? Our preaching would be empty, our Bibles would be nonsense, our sins would be unforgiven. Um, But there's more. Have a look at verse 18. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And that, and that phrase, they've fallen asleep, that's kind of a, a euphemism for, for dying. It's a phrase Paul uses a few times in the letter. And so what he's saying is that if, if Jesus isn't raised, meaning that no one gets raised, then those who have died in Christ, died with, with faith in Christ, you know, believing that they would be raised to new life in, in him, well, they will have perished. They will have died believing a lie. In other words, if Christ is not risen, well, the gospel offers no comfort. Does it? No hope of seeing loved ones again. How tragic a thought is that? No wonder, he says, verse 19, that if the only hope we have in Christ is hope for this world alone, well, we are to be pitied above all people. And that that would be right, wouldn't it? If Christians are wrong about life after death, If Christ has not been raised, meaning that there's no hope of us being raised, if this life is all there is, well, pity the Christians most of all. For we have wasted our lives. We've sacrificed them for a lie. It's it's kind of, it's a passage of relentless logic, isn't it? There's no point in any of it if Christ is dead. You see, I, I think he wants us to feel the despair of imagining that Christ is not risen and what that would mean. right? It would mean our preaching is empty. It would mean our Bible is nonsense. It would mean our sin is unforgiven. It it would mean uh, our comfort and future hope is false and we would be the most pitiable of all people. It's a miserable scenario, isn't it? How desperate a situation we are in if Christ is not raised. Which makes verse 20... Just a brilliant verse, doesn't it? But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Have a look at that. So he's, he's invited them not to imagine the difference it would make. Uh, sorry, he's, he's invited them to imagine the difference it would make if Christ hadn't been raised. But now he wants them to know the difference that it does make. Since, in fact, Christ has been raised. So notice the contrast there. It's not between one possible scenario and another. Okay, what if Christ hasn't been raised? What if Christ has been raised? That's not the comparison. Because he's actually spent the first 11 verses reminding the Corinthians that uh, the fact that the the resurrection is a fact of history. You you can go and check it out for yourselves. So, So Paul doesn't say, now imagine if Christ had been raised. He says, but since Christ has been raised. In other words, it it, it would be despairing if Christ were not raised. But the fact is that he is raised. 
So there's no need for despair. He's risen. And he's done so, verse 20, as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that, that phrase, first fruits there, it, it, well, it comes from the kind of the farming world, doesn't it? Or the market gardening world. The first fruits of the crop are the first pickings. They, they, they tell the farmer that the main harvest is, is on the way, don't they? When you see the first fruits are ripe and ready, well, you know that soon there's going to be loads more where, where they came from. It's, it's inevitable. And, and just like that, the resurrection of Jesus proclaims the fact that he's just the first of many to, to be raised after death. There's a whole crop of them coming afterwards. It's inevitable. You can bank your hope on it. So, so verse 20, therefore, moves us away from imagining the implications of Christ not being raised to showing us the implications of what is actually the case, which is that he has been raised. Do you see the point? You know, if, if, a, if a farmer comes back in from, a, from his orchard or whatever at the beginning of the harvest season and he's clutching a single apple, he's going to be able to say, isn't he, look, the apples are coming. Right, Because the, the readiness of the first one is the assurance that the rest are soon to follow. And, and notice that he spells out two, two kind of big implications of that. And you can see the first one in verses 21 to 28, where he spells out what that means for our, our long-term future, you know, our eternal future. And he, he takes us through a kind of a chain of events here that guarantee an eternity under God. That's, that's what he's doing. These are quite complex verses. They're, they're a bit difficult even to read. Um, but let's see if we can get the general idea at least. Verse 21, look. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits... And then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And this is like a, a complicated verses, but it's like a, it's like a brief history of everything that's, that's, that's going on here. It's like the life, the universe and everything. Um, it, notice verse 21 initially we're taken back we're taken back to the beginning of time here um, uh, to the events of Genesis 1 to 3 when humanity first rejected God's rule and one man Adam represented humanity and, and, and represented that rejection of God that we have all followed him in since and in doing so brought death into the world verse 21 in other words, every one of us as, as humans is in Adam, if you like. In other words, he is, our, he is our representative head of the human race. And where he went, you know, rejecting God, going his own way, we go too. He kind of dragged us with him. And not only into the same rebellion as him, but into the same consequences as him 
uh, as well. And the consequence of Adam's rebellion that we are guilty of too is that God introduced death into the world, didn't he? So in Adam, verse 22, all die. But then, in verse 22, we're taken forward in history from there to that moment when God the Father sent God the Son into the world. So yes, in Adam all die, but also in Christ shall all be made alive. In other words, all of humanity is in Adam and so facing death. But if we're also in Christ, if, if, we're, if we're united to him by faith, if we're trusting him for our eternal salvation, then we will be made alive again. And how can that happen? Well, we, he's told us this already, hasn't he? Back in verse 3, it's because Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. In other words, Christ died in, in our place. When he went through the doorway of death, it was with the express purpose of taking on himself the punishment for our rebellion, the judgment that we deserve, so that we can be forgiven. And that means that when we have to go through uh, the same doorway of death, if we do so trusting Jesus, there's no judgment waiting for us on the other side. We don't have to pay the price of sin ourselves because it's already been paid. Do, do, do you see the point? Adam introduced death. And as humanity, we are all in Adam. And so we face the same fate. But Christ abolishes death for all who are in Christ. In other words, one man, Adam, represented humanity and brought death to the world. Another man, the Lord Jesus, represented God's new humanity, his church, and brought resurrection to the world. Does that make sense? And, and then, look, he takes us forward in history even further, and he tells us that the Christ who came to bring resurrection to the world is also coming back to raise to life all who belong to him, verse 23, and to destroy everything and everyone that remains opposed to him, verses 24, 25, including, verse 26, the greatest enemy of all, death itself. And then finally, in verses 27, 28, we're taken beyond history, beyond his second coming, into eternity, where with Christ's work done, he and all those who are in him submit to the loving rule of the Father for all eternity. Now, I realize I've, I've rattled through those quite quickly, but can you see the, the big idea here? Because God raised Jesus, then God will rule everything forever. If not even death can stop God, nothing can. No one can. Death is the last great enemy, but God has defeated death. There's a future beyond death, and that future is an eternity under God. And friends, whether that is a future heaven or a future hell will all depend on whether it's actually under God that you want to be. And so you submit yourself to Jesus as, as your rescuer and your ruler. So that's the long-term future. Because Christ is risen, there is eternity under God for those who are in Christ. But there's one more thing that he wants us to see. This is verses 29 to, to 34, which is the short-term implications of the fact that Christ is risen. Because the fact that our future will, have an will be an eternity under God means that our lives now 
have got meaning and purpose and significance. And, and look, he starts in verse 29 by showing us, that, showing us that our Christian practices have meaning. Have a look at verse 29. Here's a weird, weird, um, weird verse for you. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptised on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised on their behalf? You might be forgiven for being a bit kind of confused about that. Some of the scholars were obviously confused. Um, It kind of suggests that the church in Corinth, among their many other mistakes, were kind of doing baptisms by proxy, I suppose. You know, if somebody died before they got around to being baptised, well, they baptised someone else on their behalf. Seems to be the, 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 the suggestion here. And don't, let's not even get started on the problems with that practice. <laughs> um, but, but it, which makes it perhaps surprising that Paul doesn't sort of take them to task on it. He, he doesn't commend it, of course, but he doesn't condemn it either. He, he just, you know, he's not bothered either way, I suppose. Or he, just, he just remains silent on the issue, I think. And the reason that he remains silent on the issue, I think, is because he's got bigger fish to fry. Because I think the thrust of what he's saying in verse 29 is, well, you've got this practice of baptizing someone on behalf of someone else who's, who's died, and, and without me even getting started on what's wrong with that, what are you bothering with any form of, of baptism on behalf of the dead for if you don't even believe that the dead will be raised? I mean, what's the point? Do you see? I think he's not massively interested in challenging their practice of baptism by proxy at this stage. Because their more fundamental problem is that they don't believe in a resurrection at all. And so it doesn't really matter what your Christian practices are. If believers don't get raised to life, what's the point? Who cares? Without the reality of a resurrection, well, no Christian practices have got any significance at all, have they? I mean, we don't just baptise people for the fun of it, do we? You know, like taking the Lord's Supper or singing or preaching or, you know, it's not just, we don't do it just for something to do on a Sunday because we don't like car boot sales or something. (laughs) You know, we we baptise people because of what it signifies, don't we? We sing because we've got something to sing about. We preach because we've got something worth proclaiming. And, And none of those things means anything unless the resurrection is true. And and the same thing goes for for our daily Christian lives. Paul says in verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? That's what life was like for Paul, wasn't it? He was putting his life on the line 24-7, right, for the sake of the gospel. He, He lived a sacrificial life. He was all out for Christ at great personal cost. He says, verse 31, I die every day. But he he says in verse 32, what what do I gain? You know, if if humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus. What do I gain if the dead are not raised? Do do you see the point? What what cause is worth fighting for if death is all there is? You know, never mind fighting with wild animals. Is there any point in sharing Christ? Is there any point in godly living? Is there any point in sacrificing your time and your money? Well, there's not even any point in turning up at church on a Sunday if there's no resurrection. If the dead are not raised, then then to risk and sacrifice yourself for the gospel, that's utterly pointless. Indeed, life itself would be pretty pointless. So the only only coherent, the only logical way to live is, is verse 32. Eat and drink for tomorrow we die. I wonder whether you've, uh, you've ever played 
that uh, crawl game with a small child um, where you, you keep playing them at something but refuse to let them win. Have you ever tried that? I don't recommend it. No, notice, what, notice what happens when you do that. They don't bother to play properly, do they? After a while, they soon work out, kids are clever, they soon work out there's no way they can win. So they start getting their fun by knocking over the pieces instead. Have you noticed that? They can't have the satisfaction of winning, you're not going to let them. So the only alternative is to try and get a bit of instant gratification by messing up the game. Yeah? And it's, it's like that with life. You know, if you know you will never win, if you know that death beats you every time, no matter what you do, well, it doesn't really matter how you play, does it? You might as well just live for the moment. You, might, you know, squeeze whatever bit of enjoyment you can get out of a short life, because that's all there is. So we live for whatever pleasure we can get in the here and now, because there's nothing else to live for. So we'll live for family, or we'll live for sport, or we'll live for travel, or we live to party, or we live to work, or whatever it is. It's not much to live for, but that's all there is. Well, friends, that might be true for the non-Christian. It's not true for the Christian, is it? Because, friends, there is a resurrection. Which means that a Christian has so much more to live for. So Paul's point is, do, do, why do we live like everybody else does? Like those who don't believe the gospel, like those who don't believe that there's a resurrection coming and, and so have nothing better to live for. Verse, uh, verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. And the people he's describing as bad company there are, are those who, who say, verse, verse 32, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Right? Or people who, verse 34, have no knowledge of God. And so they, they live for the here and now because that's all there is. In other words, it's those who don't believe the gospel or the reality of a future resurrection. You might think it's a bit harsh of Paul kind of calling non-Christians bad company like that. You might want to point out that many non-Christians in the world often seem to be better human beings than some of the Christians are. I think I'd agree with that. Um, but, 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 but also, uh, you know, I think that that's actually the point here. See, Paul knows that there, there will be unbelievers in the world that we'll look up to, people that we'll admire, people that will think of role models as, in certain ways, which I think is why he says in verse 33, don't be deceived yeah, or, or wake up from your, from your stupor. It's because he knows that such people may very well be inspiring and, and lovely people in, in many ways. But if they don't believe the gospel and so a future resurrection to come, well, what they are living for can only be the here and now, can't it? And for the Christian to live that way, as though this life were all there is, is actually ruinous for us. We're not to live as though this world is all there is. So no matter how lovely the people around us must be, we mustn't be deceived as we live among them into living ourselves in ways that are shaped by that ungodly thinking. Do you see that's Paul's kind of wake-up call here? The reality of the resurrection doesn't just affect our future. It affects our present. It fills every area of our lives now with meaning and significance and purpose. 
The fact that one day we will be raised with Christ needs to spur us on to live lives of risk and lives of sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. You know, the mantras of this age, you know, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die or you only live once or live for the moment. Friends, they're lies. Christ has been raised and will be raised with him. So we don't want to be living our lives now as though this life were all there is. Or as he puts it in verse 34, don't go on sinning. In other words, let go of the money. Give up the time. Use the resources. Strive for holiness. Kill the self-indulgence. And instead be willing for sacrifice. I, I die every day, says Paul. Friends, there is a resurrection. Christ was raised, and just as surely at the end of history, we will be raised with him to an eternity under God. So in the strength that God provides, let's live our lives now in the light of that coming reality. Should we pray? Let's pray. Father, having, um, having considered this morning what it what it would look like if Christ had not been raised. We thank you so much that he has been raised. And and we thank you that we will be raised with him to a glorious eternity under you. And so, Father, we give you all of the praise and all of the glory, for we know that you alone have have achieved this for us through the death and the resurrection of your son. And and as we've been reminded of how the resurrection fills every area of our lives now with meaning and purpose. So we ask that you would help us, help us to, to more and more stop living as though this life were all there is. But rather to live lives of risk and sacrifice now in the light of an eternity to come under you. And all of this we pray for your glory and for Jesus' sake. Amen.